The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Monday, April 4th is the day of action to abolish student debt. Thousands of young people will gather in Washington, D.C. to say, pick up the pen, Joe, and abolish student debt via executive action. Astra Taylor will explain she's co-founder of the Debt Collective. But first, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas will be called to testify before the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Joan Walsh has our analysis. That's coming up in a minute. The House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection will call as a witness the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Her name is Virginia, but everybody calls her Ginny. Last week, we learned about text messages Ginny sent to Trump's chief of staff before and after January 6th, urging him to try to overturn the 2020 presidential election. For comment and analysis, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She's been an on-air political analyst for CNN and MSNBC. She produced the wonderful 2020 TV documentary, The Sit-In. Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. We talked about it here. She's also former editor-in-chief of Salon and author of the book with the wonderful title, What's the Matter with White People? Joan Walsh, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, the media describe Ginny Thomas as a conservative activist. Do you think that's accurate? How would you describe her? It's accurate enough. I mean, I would describe her, I think, more as a far-right wingnut activist. Um, she's, she's not just a mainstream player. Uh, as we see in this series of, of uh, texts back and forth, she really believes in uh, certain QAnon points of view. She's sending Mark Meadows crazy ideas by, you know, by crazy people who appear with Alex Jones on Infowars. She really resides pretty far out on the fringe. Yeah, let's talk about 
what was in those text messages. She did call the effort to get the election results overturned, quote, a fight of good versus evil. There were some other parts that were a little more mysterious to me. She texted about watermarked ballots that she said, quote, have been part of a huge Trump and military white hat sting operation in 12 key battleground states. What is that about? I gather that it was a QAnon theory, uh, that their slogan was watch the water, that somehow Trump had circulated these ballots and was going to be able to prove fraud when they were turned in. Um, but it's it's very, very uh, murky. I, I don't I'm not positive I'm doing it all the justice it deserves. Sure. Justice is not really uh, the right term here. But she also said, quote, Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now and over the coming days this is like in the late November, a couple of weeks after the election, and we'll be living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. What is that about? A projection. The only people that I am aware of uh, having anything to do with sedition were her and her allies and Ru Rudy Giuliani. And, you know, she really she really palled around with some some of the great legal minds you know she was a big backer of Sidney powell a, a, an attorney who ultimately was was too crackpot and uh and out there for even the trump team to stay uh to stay tied to uh and so she was really pushing some out there theories that even trump's people were not ready to get behind um and you know you can see there, there, there was a little bit of uh most of most of the met the meadows messages were lovely and flattering and reassuring but there there got to be a little bit of tension because you know he was being told to look into things that the trump folks had already decided weren't true i mean you know it's a really high bar but they they did decide some things weren't true so um you know i think i think he was getting more and more irritated with her as she just stayed out there on the fringes and remind us how we got these messages. Who who gets the credit for breaking this story? Um, I it, the Washington Post uh, and CBS reported the most about it. I believe CNN got got them first. They were Meadows gave these messages when he was considering uh, cooperating. He gave these text messages um, to the committee, so they've had them for a while. And we've seen other messages um, between you know Meadows and. Don Jr., uh, Sean Hannity, people who were very, very worried that Trump was not doing enough on the day of the riot to stop the violence. Um, so we, you know, we've we've gotten some good scoopage from these from these messages before, but I think this is among the most interesting. There are no text messages between November twenty fourth and January tenth. Is it possible Mark Meadows withheld some of the texts? anything's possible. That's an awfully long um, break, you know, given that they've been texting back and forth every couple of days. So whether he shifted phones, I, I really, I have no idea, but I, I find it very unlikely that they wouldn't communicate at all for that long a stretch, especially as the planning 
you know, and she was involved in the planning for the Stop the Steal rally. Um, she insists she had nothing to do with the violence, but she, you know, definitely was trying to turn up a good crowd of people uh, to, you know, put the fire behind Mike Pence and make him refuse to uh, accept the reality of the electoral uh, ballots. Well, it's not news that Clarence Thomas's wife is an activist on the far right. She's been at this for a long time. Yes, she uh, was working in the Bush White House, the transition team, when her husband was ruling on whether they should stop the Florida recount. Uh, she worked for the Heritage Foundation for a long time on a variety of issues that then would come between uh, before the court. She has her own uh, lobbying firm now that has frequently lobbied or is associated with lobbyists who uh, submitted amicus briefs at, on court business. Um, and, you know, as far as I can tell, her husband's rulings are usually in line with what she and her colleagues are pushing for. Um, she, she has always maintained that she's been careful to distance her activity from her husband. I don't believe that that's true. You see them out at all kinds of events. She gets awards. He's there. Um, you know, and there's even there's an interesting little aside in one of the texts where, you know, she's she's upset about not enough is being done, but she thanks Mark Meadows for cheering her up and also says, I had a wonderful conversation with my best friend that also boosted her. And the, the Thomases have referred to one another as their best friends. So it really feels like she's referring to a conversation about all this mess, all this conspiracy with her best friend and husband. So bringing this up to the last couple of weeks, in your piece for The Nation, you contrasted the demands made on Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Ketanji Brown Jackson, with what's happening now with Clarence Thomas. Yes, she was forced. She's already been forced. She's not, she doesn't even have the appointment yet, but she was forced to say that she will recuse herself uh, when a Harvard case comes before the court, uh, I believe, in the com in the coming session, because she's on one of several Harvard go governing boards. It's not something that makes policy attendant uh, admissions policy. She could con she could get away with not recusing herself, but she's doing it because she cares about the appearance of conflict of interest, uh, and more more judges should do that. Meanwhile, 24 congressional Democrats have called on Clar Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from from exactly what? Uh, I think mainly the, these recent uh, requests have to do with his continuing to rule on January 6th related business. Um, I'm not aware of anything right now that, that, that she's involved with that he's ruling on. It seems to be the, the continued challenges to the committee's work, there's been at least one case, you know, of state electors being challenged that that he ruled on, and he ruled unusually. Uh, he was the only justice to rule that Donald Trump did not have to turn over any of his documents. You know, he lost that one, I think, eight to one. But you know, he's he's still in there, and, and it should whether whether he wins or whether he loses, he he should not be allowed to do this. So now the House Special Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is saying they will call Ginny Thomas as a witness. I see two possible scenarios here. Scenario one, she testifies. 
Scenario two, she defies the subpoena. She gets charged with contempt of Congress. She would be found guilty and sentenced to prison. Uh, what do you think will happen with Ginny Thomas and the January 6th committee? I don't know. I find it very, it's all very depressing because it's taking a long time for them to get these people charged. And it's it's very likely that by the time there would be a trial, there won't be a January 6th commission. I mean, the, you know, if Kevin McCarthy gets to take over the House, he's already said he'll disband it or, you know, put it to work investigating Biden. So, you know, I, I think that they might very well win these cases in court. They have a couple of others right now, but I don't know that they'll be around when when that happens. Many of our friends, including our colleague John Nichols, are calling on the House to impeach Clarence Thomas. They argue that his wife, Ginny, helped organize a coup attempt against the U.S. government, and Justice Thomas abused his office in that case that you referred to by trying to cover it up. Is that grounds for impeachment of a Supreme Court justice? I think it could. Sure, it, it absolutely is. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I think they have so much on their plate right now. And again, you know, facing the potential loss of the House. I don't want to say that. I've spoken to people who are nevertheless very optimistic, but I've also spoken to a lot of pessimist people too. So, you know, who just don't think we can we can handle something like this, something that distractive, distracting. I mean, I do think it's interesting um, because last week it was being said that Liz Cheney was not interested in having Ginny Thomas come to see them and that she worried that it was, you know, a possible cheap shot at Justice Thomas. And now she's she's part of this request. So that that's that's interesting. I think, you know, the, those texts were really pretty horrific and she has to be spoken to. Well, if Congress does not impeach a Supreme Court justice, there is one other way a Supreme Court justice can be disciplined, and that's by the chief justice. You think there's any possibility of that? Uh, very little. Uh, you know, he just hasn't shown much appetite. The um, Congress can also create new rules governing the Supreme Court. They, they do not have to abide by ethical standards that other judges, other, other levels of the court have to. It's, it just doesn't apply, apply to them. So, you know, I saw earlier today Dick Durbin saying they're, they're thinking about, you know, what, how they can do that so that it wouldn't merely be at the, at the discretion of Justice uh, Roberts. So, you know, we'll see. Joan Walsh wrote about Ginny and Clarence Thomas for TheNation.com. Joan, thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. The day of action to abolish student debt is Monday, April 4th, when thousands of young people will gather in Washington, D.C. to say, pick up the pen, Joe, and abolish student debt via executive action. For comment, we turn to Astra Taylor. She's a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She's co-founder of the Debt Collective, a union for debtors with roots in the Occupy Wall Street movement. She writes for The Guardian, The New York Times, and The Nation. Astra Taylor, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. 
Well, let's start with facts and figures, the extent of student debt. How many people are we talking about? How much do they owe? And why is this an issue right now? The student debt crisis has reached epic proportions. Uh, the best estimates we have are we are racing towards $1.8 trillion. That includes federal and private student loans. The vast majority of student loans out there are, are federal, meaning that they are secured by the federal government. That number includes, we estimate, around 45 million households. So Ooh. around 45 million debtors. And you have to understand that these are debts that affect whole families. So often a parent takes out what's called a parent plus loan for their kids. You know, sometimes kids take out student loans and lend them to their family members. So we like to talk about these debts being household debts. They don't just affect individual people. These debts are disproportionately held by folks who are people of color, who are working class. By definition, wealthy people don't take out student loans to go to school, right? If your parents are millionaires, they probably pay for you to go to school. So we think everybody who has student debt, uh, you know, it's a sign that they are, um, they are, they don't have wealth, right? They have debt. The last thing I want to say about it, though, to your point in the introduction is not all student debtors are young. In fact, the fastest growing demographic of student loan holders are people of retirement age. And this is complicated, but it's because on the one hand, people it shows people aren't able to pay them off, right? They're going through life and carrying these loans with them. And it's also because we live in a society where there isn't economic security and job security. So if something happens, you're told it's your fault, go back to school, get a degree. That means taking out loans probably when you're should be saving for retirement. Uh, and so something on the order of 150,000 people are actually having their social security garnished over yeah. all the student loans. And um, how many people or how many households are right now in delinquency or default? That's a really interesting question. Before the pandemic, over a million people defaulted on their student loans every year. And you know, since the pandemic started, we have been in a federal loan payment pause. And that was actually implemented by Donald Trump. Uh, Joe Biden has extended that payment pause multiple times. So that has spared people from default within this specific uh, COVID crisis. But, but what it shows, what the statistics from before show is that huge numbers of people are not able to keep up with their loans. They're not able to, uh, it, it's not enough to provide some of the programs that the government provides, such as income dividend repayment or forbearance, you know, these programs your listeners are probably familiar with, that they're defaulting and, and overwhelmingly these are the, um, the borrowers with the least, with the least resources, least intergenerational wealth. Well, the news this week is that Biden has submitted his budget to Congress and it contains nothing about Congress passing legislation for giving student debt. Do you consider that bad news? I actually don't, uh, but I do consider the overall budget to be very distressing because I, you know, there's a whole lot of money in there for what we could call violence work, right? For the police, for the military, uh, you know, the, a huge um, increase of the military budget, you know, instead of care work, instead of the work of educating people, um, taking care of their health, uh, those services that we need so that we don't, uh, you know, the we need to be publicly providing so people don't have to take on debt <laughs> when they go to the uh, hospital or when they go to school. Um, 
But I will say this about canceling student debt, it actually doesn't cost the government any money. That The money for student loans is out the door, right? It is out the door when they lend it. And so it doesn't uh, worry us too much that it wasn't included in the budget. It does make us sad, for example, that there isn't money for free community college, which was a core campaign promise for the Biden administration. The fact is, canceling student debt will cost taxpayers nothing. It will actually make us all richer. Uh, and this is something Elizabeth Warren says a lot, that canceling student debt is the biggest bottom-up economic stimulus that uh, the government can do. Because just think about it, all that money that people were paying to their student loan servicers would instead go for things like food, maybe saving up for a down payment on a house, maybe daycare, uh, you know, maybe even enjoying life a bit, maybe buying some books or whatever you wanna do. Um, and so we would all benefit, actually, even if we don't individually have student debt from cancellation. So Biden has not asked Congress to pass legislation for giving student debt, but you say he doesn't need legislation to abolish student debt. Yeah, he doesn't. This is very, very, very clear because there is something called Compromise and Settlement Authority. It was part of the Higher Education Act of 1965 initially, but then it was also renewed every time the Higher Education Act was reauthorized. And guess who was in Congress reauthorizing that Higher Education Act? Well, Joe Biden himself. So what I'm saying is that, the, that Congress has already authorized the president and the secretary of education to cancel student debt. And that makes sense because when you borrow, oh, sorry, when you lend money, you don't have to collect on it, right? So the idea that you're lending money implies the idea that you can cancel the debt. Uh, and in fact, this is the same authority that is currently being used to cancel the interest that is part of that student loan payment pause I mentioned. So it's very, very head scratching to the debt collective that the president is saying, well, do I have the legal authority to cancel student debt? when with one hand he's using it uh, to cancel interest. So absolutely, this is a really important thing because what it means is with the flick of a pen, President Biden can cancel federal student loans. And that's really important at a moment when he's being, uh, when his agenda is being sabotaged, not just by Republicans, but by corporate Democrats. Didn't he already promise he would forgive $10,000 worth of student debt during the campaign? Wasn't that a campaign promise? Oh, John, he did, but he didn't just cancel, he didn't promise that. He promised to cancel an immediate, that is a quote, minimum, another quote, of $10,000 of student debt. So that is for every single borrower and it's not means tested. In other words, no income requirements. He also promised to cancel all undergraduate student debt for people who went to public schools and also to private HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities and MSIs, minority serving institutions. He made a big, big, big promise. And this is one, again, that he can keep uh, with the flick of a pen. And it seems to me that it would be a mighty smart thing to do in advance of the midterms because a whole lot of polling has come out just in the last few months showing that it's overwhelmingly popular across party lines. It's popular with people who didn't even go to college. It's popular with old people, young people, black people, white people, with uh, Latino uh, likely voters. It's really a popular and smart thing to do. One more uh, thing about the budget. If you read the news carefully, you find 2.7 billion to improve customer service for student loan borrowers, 2.7 billion. I wonder if you have any comment on that. That is egregious. And you actually just highlighted something that I had missed. You know, it's interesting. The Debt Collective has spent many, many, many hours over the last few months compiling evidence that we have been submitting to the federal government about the incredible abuses 
that these loan servicers inflict on borrowers. They miss they misplace payments. They don't let people enroll in the programs that would save them money. You know, and they're essentially just making money off of what should be uh, making money hand over fist over what should be a public good. Uh, and so that is that's outrageous. You will definitely be seeing us uh, commenting on that later in the day. Now, some of your critics say college education is an asset. It increases your ability to earn money, so you should pay for it, like investing in any other asset. I think they're sad. I think that's such a sad way of thinking about education. I mean, I'm very interested in democracy. I know you are as well. It's something I've written about. A, a functioning democracy needs an educated citizenry, and we need people who don't just treat education as um, skills training or, or career training as something to profit off of, but holistically, right? So that we can think, we can deliberate, we can reason, we can decide together. Um, you know, but less philosophically than that, I benefit as a citizen by there being um, lawyers graduating from law school and doctors graduating from medical school who, because they are not buried in student debt, have the ability to become uh, public defenders or, uh, you know, uh, general practitioners or family doctors or dentists in a rural area. You know, we live in society. Uh, when you take this idea that education is simply an asset and you should maximize your return on investment, you get really pathological outcomes. Um, and so I, we really encourage people to think outside of that box uh, and to understand that we all should be invested literally uh, in whether uh, our, our, the people we share the world with can access education. Great. And some people also say, it's un what you are proposing is unfair to people who paid their student debt because you're letting other people off the hook. What do you say to that? Well, I actually, this one, I this is where I get to be a bit smug and say, well, actually, I paid my student debt. <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, I'm someone who I went through the default that we talked about right after the financial crisis. I had a pretty hard time and I defaulted on my student loans. And then my, my, uh, situation changed and I was able to pay off my student loans in full. And, and what that experience of paying off my student loans left me with was a sense that everybody should have that freedom. Everyone should have that privilege. I, I don't want people to suffer just because I did, right? The whole idea of social <laughs> progress is that future generations don't have to go through what we went, went through if it was bad. Um, you know, so I will say this though, uh, to the polling, what's really striking is again, student debt cancellation is actually more popular just by a few points with people who have no college than people who went to college. So this idea that there are these millions of bitter uh, Americans out there who will be angry if someone else gets debt relief, it's not really reflected in the polling. It seems to me that it's something that you know right-wing commentators are trying to push out there. Uh, but it actually seems when you actually go out and talk to people that folks understand the cost of college is out of control and that debt cancellation is pretty darn fair. You've convinced me. You have another way of thinking about student debt. You say your debt is someone else's asset. How does that work? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because you just said there, we're encouraged to think about education as an asset. What, we're, what the, we at the Debt Collective are trying to get people to recognize is that actually your, your loans are an asset. And this is, this is really a basic point. I mean, the debts we hold are bundled <laughs> and owned by creditors on the other side and, and people profit off of those. They profit from the interest and fees. And so, and, uh, you know, what economists point out is that our debt payments are actually a form of wealth transfer 
from the poor, from struggling debtors, to the wealthy who hold those debts as assets, who are invested in them. And so what happens is that, you know, creates the illusion of prosperity. Okay, so you borrow, you have some money today, but ultimately what you're doing is uh, through those monthly payments, concentrating wealth <laughs> at the top. Uh, and so what, what you can recognize when you see your debt as an asset is that actually it's a form of power. Uh, it's not just a burden if you, recognize that it is someone else's asset and you join with other debtors, um, then you could wield those debts together uh, through strategic forms of non-payment. The debt collective has organized debt strikes. And so what we realize is that individually our debts overwhelm us, but together they make us powerful. So some people say, well, forgiving all student debt, that's a little too big for Biden, given the situation in the Congress. How about if he just extends the freeze on student debt interest payments? Or how about if he cancels the first 10,000? Won't that help millions of people? Well, he should cancel it all. I mean, I think this is, you know, I can make lots of economic arguments about how canceling every penny of student debt will boost the economy, which it will, it will create jobs. I mean, to me, I'm very committed to the moral argument, which is that education shouldn't be a commodity. And in fact, a few generations ago, education was basically free and publicly provided. So let's return to that sensible model. Um, Look, I think they do need to extend the payment pause, and it would be quite a hack to just extend it forever. <laughs> you couldn't do that, in fact. Um, I think they do need to, they, they need to extend it so that they can actually figure out the logistics of cancellation. Um, and the problem with canceling $10,000 is that uh, huge numbers of people would have that number just return practically overnight because of interest, right? Because their their payments are structured in such a way that um, you know the the balance is ballooning. Uh, there's really no reason for the Democrats to go small on this. The more debt they cancel, and the more they do it broadly, instead of trying to restrict the people who benefit, the easier it is administratively, right? They just clear out accounts. The less likely it is for there to be some kind of bureaucratic mess up that frustrates people. Uh, the more folks whose lives are transformed by this, the more uh, goodwill they'll uh, generate in the in the general public, uh, and the less suffering there will be, you know, and the bigger the economic boost. So this is something where there's just, there's really no economic, moral, or political reason to go small. I mean, I think there's every reason for uh, the president to pick up that pin. So tell us about Monday, April 4th. What's the plan? Debtors are busing in and flying in and driving in from across the country to meet at the Department of Education to tell Joe Biden to pick up the pen. There will be a debtors assembly. A debtors assembly is something the debt collective often does. It's uh, essentially a circle where people talk about their debts and get rid of that shame and that stigma, right? And see that other people are in the same boat, start building solidarity. We'll also be marching around the Department of Education calling for a jubilee. And a jubilee is, uh, you know, a kind of biblical commandment, right? And actually uh, going back, the word originally in Hebrew means trumpet, <laughs> the trumpet of freedom. So we'll be having, we'll have brass bands, we'll have teach-ins and just demonstrating uh, to the administration uh, that people aren't letting this go. We're also inviting people who can't be in DC to participate in what we're called calling take your debt to work day. Wear red, 
wear some masking tape or a sticker with uh, either your personal debt amount or the average debt in your state and just start talking to people have a one you know start one of those assemblies right where where you invite people to get get over the shame to kind of come out of the shadows politicize their debt so we can start building the power that we need to change the system Astra Taylor of the Debt Collective. You can find more information about the Day of Action in Washington, D.C. at debtcollective.org. Thank you, Astra. This is great. Thanks so much for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.